like the last, deals with the crisis years in the first half of the 20th century. And so what I'd like to do in this podcast is go back over the history of World War I, known at the time as the Great War, and highlight themes that you'll see represented in the works we're reading and watching for this unit, All Quiet on the Western Front uh, and The Grand Illusion. So if I can go back over the origins of the war, uh, you know, I don't want to repeat the earlier podcast, but I would like to highlight uh, you know, the, the long-term causes uh, of the war that you can see on the uh, PowerPoint slide. And, and so I'd like to emphasize the, the role of nationalism, the role of class conflict, uh, and the role of changing technology in increasing tensions and pushing Europe towards war. Now, I don't think they made the war inevitable, uh, but they made it increasingly likely over the, the course of the second half of the 19th century, and they powerfully shaped the kind of war that ultimately did emerge in August of 1914. Okay, so to, to start with nationalism, the, the idea that legitimate political power comes from the people, right, that the government somehow takes its strength, its, its reason for, for existence from the people, became increasingly important and powerful over the course of the 19th century in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Now, you know, very few of the European powers were democracies, as I've been emphasizing so far this semester. Really, France was the only country that had universal manhood suffrage, uh, where men's vote mattered before 1914. Um, but all of the great powers, from the most reactionary and conservative, the Russian Empire, to the, the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, increasingly the, the ruling elites claimed the right to rule. Um, they, they claimed to speak on behalf of the people. They claimed to act in the people's uh, interest. Now, uh, this you know, idea of the people, of national sentiment, emerged, I think, in Europe uh, in the context of the French Revolutionary Wars and especially Napoleon, which forms a kind of back, backdrop or, or context for this course. Uh, so in the early 1800s, uh, Napoleon's armies occupied all of Europe all the way to Russia. And Europeans at the time were amazed by how powerful the French armies were. Uh, and the French armies, of course, promised citizenship to their own soldiers. And so for people in the occupied territories, they, they asked themselves, well, how is the, the French army able so easily to overpower the, you know, the, the kings or the emperors that, that rule over us? Uh, and increasingly, the answer they came up with was that uh, it, it was by harnessing uh, the, the strength of the people. And, and so they, they started to distinguish between the French occupiers and the German or Italian or the Polish people. They, they ruled over, keeping in mind that you know, there was no Germany in 1800. Poland as an independent country didn't exist between the 1790s uh, and 1918. Um, but the idea that there were sort of separate you know, national communities uh, did exist, and it, it took root, and it flourished over the course of the, the 19th century. And it 
it grew uh, you know, stronger and stronger um, with developments like mass literacy. Right as public education became more common, as more and more people could read, and they were reading in the different national languages, um, the, the sense of a national community became stronger and stronger. Right, it was reinforced as more roads were built; it became easier to move uh, you know, around the different provinces uh, of of these countries. Stronger still um, with with railroads. Uh, and even stronger at the end of the 19th century, uh, when all of the different European powers began to impose military drafts on young men. Right? And that meant that all young men uh, had to leave their hometowns. They had to travel you know, perhaps to different regions, uh, you know, meet people who spoke, in some cases, different languages, at least with different accents, and to see different parts of the same country and increasingly thought of themselves as French or Italian or German. Uh, and so those rivalries became more and more uh, important, right? So I would you know, emphasize mass literacy, roads, railroads, and military draft over the second half of the 19th century in terms of making nationalism a more and more powerful force, right? As we move east in Europe, you know, from the German-speaking countries into the Slavic territories where you had big, diverse empires, uh, there were quite sizable communities. I mentioned Poland. This would be a case in point where you had groups that really didn't feel represented by the states they lived in. And so these rivalries are becoming more and more important. I mentioned class conflict. Um, you know, as the Industrial Revolution developed, factories become bigger and bigger. We have more and more, you know, farmers or you know, people leaving the countryside for the city. Uh, as the factories get bigger, uh, the working classes became increasingly organized. Right? We see flourishing of labor activity in the second half of the 19th century as you know, political controls become liberalized. Uh, it becomes possible for people to meet, to, to associate, to, to organize. Uh, you see the emergence of powerful labor unions uh, from the 1860s you know, and 70s onwards. We see organized socialist parties. So there's a, I mean, a, a distinction which can be confusing between labor unions, which represent workers, especially on the workplace, and help negotiate better contracts, uh, accident insurance, uh, things of this sort, and socialist parties. Right? These were you know, workers' representatives in the various uh, you know, chamber of deputies, for example, or the parliament. Um, you know, especially in England and France, where workers could vote, or at least most skilled workers could vote, those unions increasingly had real political clout. Now, if I add to this the technological changes that are taking place in the second half of the 19th century, I would emphasize, I mentioned the railroads, they're fundamental. We get the telegraph, we get the machine gun, um, and you know, together, these developments make it possible for armies to increase massively in size. And so, you know, armies that had had, uh, you, know, a, you know, tens of thousands, perhaps, you know, a hundred, a couple hundred thousand uh, soldiers in the middle of the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, they're approaching a million soldiers. 
right? And as the, the militaries get to be larger and larger, the relationship between ordinary workers and the government changes dramatically because the government depends on ordinary working class men uh, to, to fight as, as soldiers. Um, so, so class conflict takes on a whole new political significance. In terms of organizations, I mean, I mentioned socialism. The first socialist international was organized in 1848, right? Karl Marx was there. Uh, it was a rather small affair, sort of smoke-filled back rooms. It didn't really amount to very much in tangible political terms, um, but it, it set a precedent, right, where socialist and organized labor uh, you know, met together and decided that wherever they came from, whatever country they came from, they shared more in common with workers from other countries than they did with elites in their own country. Okay, so 1848, we see the first international, which was relatively short-lived. Marx, you know, Karl Marx was a much more effective theorist than he was actually as a politician. But then there was a second international in 1889, which marked the, the 100th anniversary, the centennial of the French Revolution. And there, the, the socialist argument is beginning to pick up steam, right? It's becoming increasingly influential. And the socialists at these international meetings are arguing that socialists really shouldn't participate in representative government. That is, they shouldn't participate in capitalist affairs. Right? That, that workers, as I said before, have more in common with one another, whatever country they come from, uh, than they do with the ruling classes of their own country. So there, you know, there were powerful arguments, uh, 1880s, 1890s, among the working classes, uh, that nationalist rivalries, those were bourgeois fights. They weren't workers' fights. You know, one of the leading uh, you know, socialist politicians of um, late... 19th century Europe was a man named Jean Jaurès. Uh, you know, he was a French socialist who was trying to keep French workers from fighting in World War I. He got assassinated on July 31st, 1914, right in the midst of the July crisis, right before World War I um, breaks out. And so there was, you know, in the summer of 1914, there was a crisis of conscience, I would say, among workers and socialists across Europe, right? They had been saying for a generation, or they had doubts about participating uh, in governments that were controlled by uh, the wealthy elites. They were, at least they, they, they often argued that war wasn't their war. And yet when push came to shove in the summer of 1914, virtually all of the socialists in Europe ended up joining the war efforts of their respective countries. Uh, there was you know, what in France was known as a sacred union, where you know, the socialists were so afraid in the first instance of having, you know, if, you, they were, if you were French, of having Germans on your soil. Um, if you were German, uh, if you were a German worker, you were afraid of being branded as a traitor right, or a defeatist. Uh, the, the labor organizers were afraid that all the work that they had done to build these massive organizations uh, over the course of the past generation um, would be crushed. 
right? And you know, Germany had the largest socialist party in Europe. In each of these cases, the organizers uh, were, were afraid that they would be shot, that they would be thrown in jail, that all of their work would be disrupted. Uh, and the organizers in particular sought an opportunity, that they sought an opportunity to work with wartime uh, governments and to win concessions for their workers. Okay, uh, so the socialist and labor leaders you might have expected not to fight in World War One, they ultimately do, uh, and they end up pursuing the the, the war pretty fairly consistently um, throughout. And so, you know, what we see in the summer of 1914 is massive enthusiasm for the war. I mean, you can see the slides of people turning out to the draft stations, volunteering uh, to fight. Uh, and the European powers, I think I had mentioned in the prior podcast, were expecting a short war. Right? They were expecting a brutal, intense, short war, and then to get back to everyday life. Uh, and the opening months of the war uh, seemed to be bearing that out. I mean, it was it was very intense. It was very brutal. Um, you know. You know Men, you know, the officer, officers and enlisted men alike ran into machine gun fire and simply got mowed down. Um, to, to, to open the war, you can see on the, the opening slide, it's called the von Schlieffen Plan. So Germany, which you know, had for a generation been afraid of being surrounded, decided to go for a knockout blow against France first before turning east and grinding down Russia second. Uh, and they they pretty nearly pulled it off, uh, and so uh, you know, Germany you know steamrolls through Belgium, then through the Netherlands, uh, into northern France, uh, and they get held off in September at the the Battle of the Marne, which uh, sort of turns the tide in the um, late summer, early fall of 1914. Um, you know, another battle. You know, early on in the summer of 1914 on the Eastern Front is the Battle of Tannenberg. We'll see that uh, in the, the, the Grand Illusion, at least there are uh, allusions to it. Um, uh, the Battle of Tannenberg is a German victory. On the whole, the fighting goes better for the Russians the first year of the war, but this is an important symbolic Russian victory. Um, but what I really want to stress is that by the fall winter of 1914, uh, the war bogs down. And on the Western Front, you get a series of trenches right, that are massive. Right? If you lined up all of the trenches on the Western Front end to end, you could go at least one way, if not back and forth from the Earth to the moon. Right? It, they were enormous. And what you got was a profoundly new kind of, of war. I mean, you, you saw the beginnings of trench warfare, uh, the use of the machine gun uh, in the American Civil War, but it takes on whole new proportions during World War I. Uh, and from the fall of 1914 until 1918 on the Western Front, the battle lines don't shift very much. Right? We get both sides dug in, and the basic sort of challenge of the war uh, it's going to be the same for World War One and World War Two, is that the Germans need a knockout blow, um, which they don't quite get, and then the Allies need to be able to hold together long enough to grind Germany down. They need to be able to hold their political coalition 
together long enough to grind Germany down. Um, and it, it was a very close run thing. Uh, you know, the, the war really could have gone either way until the, the very last minute. Um, okay, so I mean, I'm mentioning you know, very quickly to give you an overview of the war. The first six months, four, five, six months or so, I guess it was from August until October, November, were out in the open, was a war of position just followed by a kind of a, a stalemate. Um, in 1914, Germany almost overruns France, but the French hold. On the Eastern Front, apart from the Battle of Tannenberg, it's really the Russians uh, who are the, the more effective force because Germany has all of their efforts devoted to the Western Front. 1915, uh, uh, Germany spends most of the year regaining what it lost uh, in the East. Um, 1916 was a year of super battles. Uh, and these you know, I've put on the PowerPoint slide, the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Verdun. These were massive titanic battles where you know, Germany had the, was occupying the high ground and was trying basically to bleed the French uh, until they surrendered and they succeeded in bleeding the French, but they bled themselves just as much. Uh, and so uh, the Battle of Verdun breaks out in February of 1916, and it runs until November. It was the, you know, the biggest battle in world history. The Germans uh, built new railroads just so they could get their railroad guns. You can see pictures of them on the slides. They could get them into position, and both sides just dropped unfathomable amounts of artillery uh, on on the other, um, you know, the, the biggest battle in world history up to the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s was the Battle of Wagram, which starts with a W, and Napoleon fired something like 200,000 shells over the course of this battle. I forget, it lasted uh, maybe a week. During the Battle of Verdun, each side was shooting over 300 uh, what was it 300,000 shells an hour, like every hour for 11 months, right? You can see, um, you know, in the slides that the territory around Verdun looked like the moon. I mean, it was just so horrific. Um, okay, now in, in order to wage battle on this scale, you know, entire societies were mobilized. That's why you've probably heard the expression of a total war. Uh, and nobody won this war. Everybody, all of the different sides ended up losing, but some of the armies did better than others, and the armies that ended up doing relatively better, the armies in the more industrialized countries that had a more developed working and middle class. So they had more engineers. They had more railroad engineers. They had more plumbers. They had more electricians. Uh, there was a longer tradition of class conflict, which meant that the elite within the working class had more experience negotiating with, with elites, right? So that they could act as go-betweens and they could maintain social cohesion. This turned out to be the hardest thing to achieve in the context of total war. Right. The Russian Empire I mentioned in the last unit was able to produce you know, endless supplies of armaments, but in the Russian Empire, social cohesion broke down. And so I want to emphasize 
the role of, of two men who were not particularly famous uh, you know, outside of specialists, but they, they very much illustrate this basic point. Um, so I'm referring to David Lloyd George in England, uh, in Great Britain, and a man named Al Albert Thomas, Albert Thomas, uh, in France. Uh, and I think they were hugely significant because both of them were labor organizers before World War I. Right? David Lloyd George you know, came up in politics in coal mining regions in Wales. And Albert Thomas was a very influential French socialist. And each of them was named Minister of Armaments or Munitions in their respective countries. Right? So you had men of the left with a labor organizing background who went into the war production plants and they insisted that workers produce. And they told the workers that they would get the best possible deal they could in terms of salaries, in terms of benefits, in terms of protections, but they insisted that those workers produced. And if they didn't produce, or if they didn't uh, you know, honor the kind of agreements that these two socialist leaders uh, had negotiated, they were gonna have to deal with the capitalist bosses um, and they would probably all be shot. Uh, and it turned out to be very powerful and very effective. It kept the working classes in England, in France, for most of the war, in the factories. It kept them in the trenches. It made them willing to fight, to see these, uh, the, these labor leaders supporting the war effort was hugely, hugely important. Okay, let me also, you know, while I'm talking about um, uh, this sort of pivotal battles, this point in, in the war, 1915-16, where we get to the, the super battles that are really testing each side. And I've pointed out that uh, either side really could have won. You know, perhaps the you know, shift from 1916 into 1917 that changes the outcome of the war is the entry of the United States. Right. Woodrow Wilson campaigned for president in 1916 to keep America out of the war. Um, and then you know, the next year, the United States enters the war. Um, so along with uh, American intervention, so American intervention and the Russian Revolution are really sort of these deciding sort of turning points of 1917. Uh, for the American intervention, I think there is a strong case to see the 20th century, just if I back up for a moment and, and think about Eric Hobsbawm, I could give you a 20th century that runs from the US intervention into World War I, right, which changes the outcome of the war, um, to the 2016 election of Donald Trump, uh, who's, who, one of whose main goals has been to pull the United States out of uh, international organizations to get Europe, or excuse me, the United States out of NATO, um, you know, to, to pull out of the kind of international institutions that Woodrow Wilson wanted to, to set up uh, as part of the global um, community. So the United States economy by 1916-17 depended thoroughly on British shipping. Uh, and so ultimately it proved impossible for the United States to remain neutral. Um, and Wilson, when he brought the United States into the war, uh, he did so without congressional support. 
and he supported the war uh, you know, up until 1918, but he started pushing for, um, uh, for a peace before the German army was really thoroughly defeated. Right? Because he wanted both sides evenly matched. He wanted to maximize American leverage, which uh, makes perfect sense from an American standpoint. Um, but it ended up making the peace unworkable. Right? It ended up creating a kind of political vacuum that paved the way for fascism. Right? And, and you know, if there's one point uh, from the Versailles Treaty uh, that I want to highlight here, and, and I can continue in the, the next podcast, it would be the Article 231, right? the war guilt clause, blame Germany um, uh, for the outbreak of the war in the first place turned out to be hugely controversial and impossible to enforce in a context in which um, you know, the, the German army claimed not to have been defeated in the field. Right, so I'll, I'll leave you on that point and pick up with the rise of fascism and Soviet communism in the next podcast. Mm-hmm.